Welcome to DevSecOps Talk, episode 5. And today, we don't have really a topic, right? Oh, well, we do. We, we have plenty of topic. Plenty yeah. of topic. We will have to choose. But I thought, if we want to make it more like a show, rather than someone unloading their brain to the yeah. audience, we could have some conversational topics to warm up with. Yeah, and, and this uh, is the idea. And, and also, this could be the first. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. So we're going we're gonna to try. And yeah. uh, what I thought would be nice is if we just spend a little bit of time talking about what we've been up to for the last two weeks since the last podcast, because we record every second week. Yeah. And uh, I can start. So Go ahead. There were, there were a number of things I've been working on. And by up to, I mean working on or being engaged into solving some interesting problem. So I, um, I've been looking into the SSH sessions logging for the Bastion hosts, well, basically for yeah. any hosts to know what people are doing there for compliance reasons, you know, you have to know what people do. And if there is a breach, you have to have a possibility to go in and see what happened and also validate that you had access to the certain data exactly as much as you thought you had and so on and so on. So, and I was looking for solutions, particularly for AWS and uh, in AWS, they have something called systems manager, which is like AWS managed automation for everything you run on AWS. And also you could use it on prem. And within that thing, you have something called session manager. So cool. the way it works is you have your virtual machine running. In there, you would need to install uh, SSM systems, simple systems manager, I think it's agent. And then you will need to provide a key or instance profile, IAM instance profile with a certain policy that would allow um, agent to call SSM API, System Manager API in Amazon. And that's basically how you enable it. And then you can see your host in a Systems Manager console. You can run actions towards it. So you basically query the certain commands. Oh, yeah, you put them into queue and then the agent will pull those commands down and run it for you if you want to. Uh, but uh, I was interested in Session Manager because that one allows you to connect to the box, no matter yeah. what the connectivity is. So basically, the SSH, um, SSM agent calls home to AWS, and then it will initiate connection to AWS, and AWS will proxy connection to you. So you don't okay. really need to have any, any VPN or anything. It's kind of very nice for the hybrid cloud where you have something on-premise, and then you could uh, see your machines on-prem as they would be Amazon host and get a direct connection to those. So you don't need to think about, you know, going through the NAT, forwarding ports and stuff like that. Nice. Or like setting up VPN. So kind of, it sounds nice. Yeah. And also what's included is it will record all commands and the output of commands during the session. And then you can use IAM to control premise. You can say what user has access where and so on and so on. But it came with a couple of problems. Like uh, first of first concern is like it basically gives access to anyone from anyone, and the only thing you need to have is IAM keys. Yeah, uh, that's a little bit concerning, really. But I could live with that, knowing that like in the environment that I work with, we, we don't have static credentials. Everything is dynamic, so. Technically, it shouldn't be an issue. Uh, but then also when you log in, you log in as a SSM agent user and uh, your working directory is user bin. So you yeah. don't go to home, you go directly to user bin for some reason. And, and I, I started to look for the documentation, which is almost non-existent. Then I found some GitHub issues. So what they do, they start bash in a shell mode with that user. And they do it because bash will run, a, you know, it will have a colors and interpretation of those fancy symbols. So you can have colors in your output. 
but that basically screw out the output of the session. It's possible to read with all those colors. So that's why they run shell. So there are no colors. Yeah. But you don't, but then you you don't really want to have everyone coming in as the same user, which else is pseudo user, which is possible to change, but well. Yeah. And we do have like a jump box set up with the users, with dynamic SSH keys and stuff. But um, yes, I, I wanted to see if I can marry those two and then make SSM agent to log in with a certain user. And uh, going through documentation, I realized it is possible. But then you will need to have a static entity like the role or a user in IAM and then apply tag. In, in the tag, it has to have a special name. And in the value, you write the username. So the user should be logged in through the session manager. And, and like, and we have all, everything is dynamic. No one have a static credentials. Yeah. And like, I, I feel that, you know, it comes with more problems to solve rather than solutions it offers. So yeah, I yeah. said, nah, nah, I don't do that. And uh, then I found a blog post from AWS which is, I, I will link it to the show notes. So we have a discourse now, right? So I will put it there yeah, yeah, yeah. in the comments where they describe how you would uh, redirect user when user login, you, you configure SSH server to force it through the special command. And uh, then that command will record what you use script, Unix util call script to record everything. And then you upload to S3. And I can see like tons of way how you can break it, but um, yeah, I'm 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 settling with this one. I, I I'm not doing it exactly according to the blog post, but no. uh, the core idea I take it as it is, and then I'm modifying a number of things to make it less fragile because you know the logs being written as uh, as your user, so technically you can find the log file and just delete it or yeah. overwrite it because you own the log and uh, the better way is to have a save to journal. And I found a tool called T-Log, I think like terminal log, which saves it to the journal. And then yeah. you just need to find a way to export journal to S3, which is yeah. possible with, uh, with the CloudWatch agent. It's a, then, then it's, you know, the rabbit hole becomes quite deep, but... Yeah. But I'm, you're doing all this to, to monitor uh, user commands on the on the jump box? Yeah, so to see yeah. what they do and uh, what was the output. There are ways to circumvent that. So for instance, yeah. if you remember back in the days when uh, Docker was not exactly supported everywhere, you would install it by piping. The, you would say CURL, special link, then pipe, yeah. shell. Yeah. Then you have no idea what the command was. No, 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 it's wrong. And if you suppress the output, then like there is no way to track it. So there no, are like no. so many ways you can break it, but well, well. I used uh, before when we are when I run the, the PCI environment, we use audit data to monitor all our CentOS uh-huh. boxes. But oh my God, it generated so many logs. It was insane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, analyzing all those logs, finding this needle in the state in, in the highs. Yeah, and we shipped them over to Elastic, but it was barely the Elastic could could keep up with all the logs flowing over all it, it was it was hard. It feels like there are so many business opportunities in that area. I mean, you know, applying some machine learning to do a bit heuristics to figure out what is what is unusual, because what you want to find is what is unusual, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we, we're doing that more and more. We collect all the logs, ship them over to Elastic, and then just watch trends, see mm. what's, what's going on. Are there something happening here? What can we react on? Yeah. We, we had some alerts when we had it before that we thought were going to be trouble. For example, SSH with the wrong password. Mm. If you somehow try logging in with SSH and had the wrong password, uh, that would be like, oh, what's going on here? Someone inside our network doing SSH? Should, should, should you have the SSH with the password at all? Like, you should no, use the key, I, right? Yeah, but it was uh, more fail, fail login, fail login, more or less. Right. But but if, if you're done, like, I, I can... No, I, I wanted to bring up another thing yeah, very quickly. Yeah, and then okay. I can talk about security and that. That would be great. But go ahead, go ahead with. 
we, we will see about that how great it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So another thing is, you know, securing AWS S3 buckets. Like everyone being hacked through S3 buckets nowadays. Yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah. they leave them open, and then someone comes around and just downloads everything they got. Yeah. There. But there is actually a way how you can prevent that. Well. Actually, AWS reacted on this, and they now have uh, ability. It's like the the block public access completely. It's uh, yeah. called public access block, something like that. And in Terraform, it's like a special resource object that you can just say like and configure it. So you cannot even have open objects. Like you could have closed bucket, but you can still have open objects within that. But with this configuration, you can block everything. Another way to achieve this is to use a different type of encryption. So with S3, you have two types of encryption. You have AWS SSE, server-side encryption. And in this case, S3 will encrypt the files in a bucket using default AWS managed KMS key. And S3 has access to that key. Yeah. Or you could use AWS KMS with uh, it's basically encryption with a customer managed key. So in that sense, AWS S3 doesn't have access to the key itself. And uh, the difference is when you use the server side encryption with S3, like with default key, when you click download the file, if you have read access to this bucket, S3 will decrypt the file for you and send it back so you can get it. But when you use it, another one with a customer managed key, and when you have a public bu- bucket, you, when you, and you have read access to that file on the bucket, when you ask S3 to give it to you, it will say, no, I cannot, because I cannot decrypt the file. I don't have access to the KMS key. So in that sense, you could have completely open bucket and people still can download it. Or you can have a closed bucket. I, I bumped into that because, you know, AWS Lambda for Go, right? It has a nasty issue that the, your S3 bucket from where you download the binary for the Lambda should be in the same region. And we happen to use a multiple regions. So we would build it in one region, and then we would try to cross-account download it to another region to upload it to another bucket. So it could be fetched there. And developers were struggling. They cannot get it. And I, I mean, they cannot download it. And we see that it, we, we give the permission for the for the users from that account to download. Those users have access to download, but they still cannot get it. And uh, yeah. yeah, but they don't have access to KMSK. I checked the CloudTrail log and I see the actual message says, like, I cannot decrypt. I cannot decrypt. So you have to give the access to the key. And in that particular case, we actually switched to the server-side encryption. So it could be decrypted and we don't need to provide the access to the key because there it wasn't really necessary. It wasn't really something that we need to protect that much. But uh, it's an interesting issue that people can bump into. And uh, Amazon Docs doesn't really outline that. So you would find the documentation describing like cross-account read from S3 but there is like no saying about encryption and encryption with a KMS key. At least I haven't found any. Maybe there is, so I might be wrong. Take it with a grain of salt. And again, in the spirit of this podcast, we all might be wrong. We are not experts. We are just people <laughs> trying to figure out the whole thing out. And yeah. this is how far my current understanding of things came through. So maybe in one year, I will listen to this. And say, oh, Andre, <laughs> how, 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 stu- how stupid you've been. That, that's how you know you progress. You know, if you don't look back at what you did before, yeah. say, who, who is that guy? That's yeah, no. anything. Time, like, yeah. And then you find out it's you, and you're like, oh, okay. Oh, that actually happened to me. I, I Google like uh, some result on uh, some Ubuntu Central, and I find my own blog post like for two years ago. Like, then I was reading, like, oh, it's. I have written this before, and now I Google it and read my own explanation. Like, crap. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great to talk about security because uh, at my place now, I've been starting to 
open up the application and to bring them together to make uh, a stack of all the applications so they can run together, right? So you can get a bigger picture of how they're working. And uh, when doing this, uh, I looked at the configuration, of course, how you configure services to talk to each other. In the root folder of the application are all the service account keys in clear text. They use label like Google service account, AWS service account. So they're all there in the repo. No, nothing more like plain text. Like Git repository, you mean? Yeah. With the credentials. Yeah, for the your, service For key. your cloud account. This, yeah, the service key. Okay. They're all in there. Uh, I, I looked at the like configuration file and they have like a big configuration file with all the different environments, like dev, prod, things. All the username, password, uh, you know, API calls to different services like mail and login to um, uh, login services. Everything in, is in that file. Every... What, do you, what, do you, what do you recommend someone doing stuff like this? Uh, uh, no. Uh, I... I looked at it and I got like a little bit terrified, like, oh shit, everything is in here. Like uh, everything, every like key that is needed for this service is in here, right? And they, But the best part is not that. The best part is like when they mock up the SQL server, hmm. they do an SSH tunnel to the production server. So they have a SSH key that give access directly into the production SQL server and then maps the port up like 3307 against 3306 and then they run it locally. They're using another database. So it's like, uh, so yeah. So that's, that's why, why you want to disable port forwarding on your SSH <laughs> servers in production because people do interesting stuff with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I, I was looking now, and I mean, they have keys everywhere, but I want to check with you now. Uh, I have this, I, I can't go in too much like fiddle with keys, of course, things will break and people can't work. So, uh, my current plan is now to, to dockerize it, make it a stack that works without using any keys. So, you can spin it up locally and it works, and you don't need all these keys to different. Mm endpoints and then uh, move all the secrets to the uh, the build chain so when you build and deploy you add your keys in that step right and then deploy it so, so that's that's the, that's the dynamic plan. secrets for the win yeah yeah but it's, but, a, but, it's, a, it's a journey it takes time to get there yeah but but you agree that that's where you want to keep them all secrets in the build pipeline and not not well, I would say even even in the execution environment, I mean, someone can steal your Docker image and run away with that, and you have everything baked in. So it's much better to actually get yeah. secrets when the image starts up. So when when it's stored, it has nothing inside. But when it gets yeah. up, like for instance, with HashiCorp world, it can connect yeah. to the world. Uh, for instance, if you're running Kubernetes, use a Kubernetes system account to notificate yeah. itself, get the world token, and then use world token to get either static or dynamic secrets it needs to run. And then yeah. if you steal the image and if you are outside of your environment, yeah, you cannot you get your hands on, on a such yeah. service account for Kubernetes. So you have no access yeah. to, to the secrets. Yeah, but I think that's the idea as well. I mean, store them in the build, deploy the application, and then have the cluster have the secret that it needs. If it's like a test cluster, it has the test credentials. If it's I, did broadly, a, yeah. I did a lot of public talks speaking about Vault lately and like deploying that. And did people you? Start, yeah. yeah, people start to look at me as a Vault secret, uh, Vault expert, which I'm not. I'm really just sharing what I what I did, what worked, what not. But yeah, people start uh -huh. to reach out and ask for consulting with Vault, and I'm yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Isn't, I... isn't Vault going to be like the standard way of using secrets? What do you? Say it's the so, best. You vault or, or do you use the cloud providers? Well, the, it, it depends, I would say. So, for instance, if you are hybrid cloud or if you are multi-cloud, 
then probably Vault is the best way to go because yeah. then you are not bind and you have a unified interface and you can do synchronizations and so on and so on. Yeah. If you just uh, sell your soul to the solar provider, like for instance, AWS, yeah. then actually I would argue that you could implement a lot of stuff that will gives to you using AWS native principles. For instance, yeah. using ACS to get uh, dynamic credentials. You could use uh, AWS RDS IAM house to get uh, temporary credentials for the database logins and so on and so on. And, you, and they also have a secret manager and yeah. the new secret manager very much looks like the wrapper around vault. So it might oh, be yeah. the vault running underneath <laughs> plus they have like the keys. They have yeah. a storage for the certificates. So like basically yeah. if you are within one cloud provider, most of the cloud, I, I don't know for Google and Azure, I assume they provide the similar services, but yeah. uh, if you are within one cloud provider and you don't plan to go anywhere else, if this is your strategy, then you probably can go without Vault. It's not really yeah. necessary. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try. I think we will have some hybrid cloud solution in the end, so I might just have a look at Vault in the beginning. Well, if you if, if yeah. you if you will give me a give me a shout out, and I could uh, I could give a presentation to your team if you like. So. Yeah, that's to, to uh, get that's your, to great, get yeah. everyone inspired and ready yeah. to go. Yeah, 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 that would be great. We should so that... we should listen, listen, Julian. If you if you finished, but if you're not, carry on. Uh, no, yeah, I have a I have a last question for you, but we can take it in the end. Let's hear what Julian has got. It's always interesting. Mm, I I'm thinking a lot lately about this uh, VPN stuff because. To me, it's a pain, very much a pain. I, I've i been a developer, so I, I understand sometimes when you see a secret in the code base, like what the hell is that doing there? And then you find out that it's because, you know, just going and getting something, getting a solution that is, I would say, usable for a developer for to, to secure credentials is actually such a long stretch. You know, the, the yeah. security tool that we have, I re unless you, you, you spend your days in it, you're mm. developer, you just want to get things done. You know, that's not your main concern. And so it, it, I, I'm, I'm torn apart by, yes, we should you should enforce strong uh, security policy. And then on the other hand, like nobody can use them. And you, you know what's going to happen next is like people are going to bypass that stuff because yeah, their yeah. manager doesn't understand why they blocked and they get the pressure on and say, okay, let, let, let's just hard code that here. I don't care. It works. I can move on to something else. Nobody's ever going to look into that until, of course, Matthias appear. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, you know, so I, I think the tooling around security is actually not not that usable I, I think there's a lot of improvement that could be made there and by by improvement i mean like okay you don't need to be an expert in cryptography to just figure out how the hell should you encrypt that like even let's take a simple example uh, ssl certificate for a web server yeah. like can you tell me right now how to generate a ssl certificate with open ssl on the command line right now like uh, I have to Google that stuff up because it's yeah, something yeah. it's something I do every like two months, but every time I was like, oh what what's that flag again? Yeah, yeah. What well, you know, it's like the, the XKCD, uh, you know, you have ten seconds left, you have to enter the correct uh, tar command. Yeah. Oh Julian. Like, Julian, no. have you heard about bash scripts? You put all, <laughs> all those commands in a bash script and next time yeah. you just run your bash script. Give me my third. Boom. Yeah, really. Yeah, I, I, that, no. that's so true. I'm, I'm not that uh, organized no. to, to do that. But yeah, yeah but I you should, need to seek. You need to seek the work from the beginning when you develop. So you need to have them. That's why it's so nice to have things dockerized, environment settings. Then you don't have to have the secret in the code. I mean, you need to have them to connect to services. Mm. But it's one thing to write it in the code and commit it with the code. Another one to have it. Yo, Julian, you know what? What? I think that's a philosophical difference between me and you. You and me. Wow. Tell me. 
because you are a developer. You are a developer yeah. in heart. It was like you're well, you're coming from development background, right? Yeah. And I'm more like a tool builder guy. I actually also coming from developer background. So I was initially trained to be a C developer, writing the <laughs> network protocols for the for Ericsson actually. Fair and but within a year, I realized that it's no fun because being a developer is, is hard. Well, not hard, but it's not fun. Well, some people might argue, but I, I will explain myself. So mm-hmm. you see, when you are a developer, you have a manager and expectations and feature plans and release plans and specification about what you should be building in most cases, or at least some vague idea and architectural diagram, unless you're in a startup and you just have to build stuff. Anyhow, like there are certain expectations about what you should build and how it should look like, right? And you have a pressure to deliver. When you work in infrastructure automation, tools development, or security, no one understands a penny about what you do. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone just happy if it works. So you actually have a free (laughs) reign to decide what you do in most cases. I I mean, like back in back in the days when I was a developer, I just got a got a task to, you know, collect the quality metrics, making sure that I mean there was an outsourcing organization that needs to show that they deliver a quite quality stuff. How they do it? By writing the document that we run all the unit tests, they all pass. The coverage is this, we run all lint analysis, it's it's pass and no, no warnings. And the person before me was doing it by hand every two weeks. And then I actually found myself a, a tool developer myself because someone told me, well, all those commands you type, you can put in a script. And then I basically spent uh, those two weeks instead of doing those commands manually, writing a bash script with a pad that I can run it overnight and get everything documented, you know. Like that was a, a instance in my life that everyone is regretting where you write a bash to generate HTML by just outputting to the file the HTML tags. Um, yeah, yeah, everyone did it, and everyone did their own static generated file through the HTML through the bash script. Yeah, I, that, that was my time. Yeah, I, I have to admit I, I have written more bash script than I'd like to admit. <laughs> I see. Yeah. And I, I'm yeah. I, like I'm, I'm constantly thinking about building a tool, like I'm doing something, and I see it as a tool. So I'm pretty much a tool builder. I'm not much interested in the product as such, and that's actually a problem because if I would be a more product person, I would build a better tools that are better usable for people. So, yeah, and that's why probably we have an issue in security and automation that there is not much usability because people write to build tools, but they don't really think as a developers and maybe not always apply the same type of thinking about the end user. And uh, well, I'm not trying to, you know, put a blanket here and say everyone does it this way because we have great tools, obviously, but not everywhere. And um, maybe that's the reason, I don't know. Yeah, there is a lot to to say about that, I, I, I think that, um, you know, security is one thing, organization is another, like, for, for me, I, I really like Vault. I think they nailed the problem really well. Mm. They, they have done a great work and, you know, it's like, it's perfect for the enterprise. Yeah. The, the, the thing is that uh, once I had uh, Vault installed in a, you know, multi-availability uh, zone and redundancy and everything, suddenly I found myself like, okay, now what, what's the organization look like? How, what are the rules? Who should have access to what? And then he, the project, tough. yeah, the project went to a halt completely. I had to remove everything because you know what? It, it was a political war. So yeah. it, it, you understand like... Uh, those tools, the security tool, they are good for um, usually automation. But if your process is not good, you're going to automate a bad process. And, and that's, uh, mm. that's also something. So, you know, security, monitoring, uh, you know, deployment, all those things, access control, it's, it's, it's actually very entangled, all of that. And some, so, for instance, 
do you, you know, if I ask people, okay, do you test in production? Some people look at me like, yes. Some people look at me like, are you crazy? Nobody does that. And I, I would argue that it depends on how good your monitoring is. Like, have you mm. heard of something called A-B testing? If uh, that is uh, not testing in, in yeah. production, I don't know what is. And so it depends on the level uh, you, you want to operate with. I, I find that people who have really good monitoring and really good um, audit of everything that's being done, they, they have no fear of going into production and doing something because they know they are quite, they can see what's going on. And so th this transparency enable a lot of things in the, the way people work and how they do. And I mean, it's just, just think about it. Like having a VPN client on my machine to me is, is such a hurdle. Mm. Like I, 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 I like VP, have you seen like lately with the, this virus, even Cisco, which is like the network company, they had to rate limit all the worker because the VPN could not handle this, the stuff. And it's Cisco, like they basically invented that stuff. So yeah. I, I see the limits of a technology that like they, they already reach. And of course, like you cannot do, uh, you know, only go use VPN for that domain because then you have the split tunnel uh, vulnerability. And those things, and I don't remember the exact name of that vulnerability, but basically you're either full on the VPN or you're not. And but, but, you know, v v VPNs is one thing, but you think about game servers or like uh, porn servers, it's also overloaded. Netflix, it's also overloaded because people have nothing to do. I decided to play a little bit of games in a, in a weekend and uh, the yeah. Battle.net, that's a client for the Blizzard, like for the StarCraft. Okay. It, it it actually had uh, authentication issues. They're like, how are servers overloaded? You're in, in the queue. Like you, you, you're <laughs> gonna be lo logged in like in uh, 30 minutes. Like in 30 minutes, I don't want to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is always a scalability issue, but all, all of that, it's not like a. You cannot solve one thing in isolation. That's what I mean. What one thing will impact the other. Yeah. And, uh, I I I think that really if. Like they, they have all of that. You know, if you look at the paper uh, like Google came out with in 2014 or something like called Beyond Corp, mm -hmm. it's very much like, okay, the, the first rule is like the, the, the network you're in doesn't define your access. So yeah. you can have, it's like the, the castle versus the, um, uh, I don't remember the, the analogy, but basically you either have a castle with walls around and once you're in the castle, you have access to everything. Or do you put a guard in each room checking yeah. everybody's ID and credentials? And so that's that's really two different approach. And one of them is they, they call it zero trust network. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it, it's much harder to implement because the, it's it's not as mainstream as the rest. So it, it's it, it it has a learning curve. But the, the benefit of that is you have one less problem to worry, which is like going through a VPN or, you know, what, yeah. once somebody is inside, well, they have the keys to the kingdom. So, you know, not much you can do. And I, I think that once you, you go to this fine grain definition of uh, security where you say, okay, you have access to this, but not that, it's much better than, okay, are you that person? Yes, then here you go, run amok and, and do whatever you want in there. And so it takes a while, but I think the benefits way, way, uh, um, how, how do you see? It, it basically just make it things so much better that it's worth the, the hustle. Yeah. yeah. I think with the advent of the, all those service meshes we have, like the war of the service meshes, <laughs> yeah. it's probably going to solve it when we will figure out the, the service mesh. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was a war of orchestrators, and then we yeah. figured out that the orchestrator is the orchestrator is the Kubernetes, all right? It's not Mesos, not Docker Swarm, but the Kubernetes. And some people might disagree with me, but the majority seems to be marching in this direction and singing songs. Yeah. <laughs> and right now we have like a war of service meshes, and they probably there is probably will depend since we're gonna have. A, different execution environments. So you have like a service mesh for Kubernetes, right? But if you do multi-cloud and you not necessarily do Kubernetes, 
then you might do something else. And actually, like another project that I'm involved in right now, it's like hyper. Uh, it's a um, mixed cloud with uh, on-prem and uh, hybrid cloud. Like some other reason yeah. I forgot the word hybrid cloud. And we're trying to go full hash stacks there. So we use console for service discovery, uh, configuration, and also networking. So we do like zero trust networking through console connect. Not exactly yet there, but intention is. And then we use Nomad on top of that for scheduling of the jobs. I, I really like that. I, I think it's really smart to choose that. It's, it's actually like so much simpler. I mean, yeah. uh, with Kubernetes, I I have a person working on that project, a man on the ground who I would say has less experience than I am. And even like for myself, you know, running Kubernetes on bare metal servers on-prem, that would be quite a hassle dealing with all the networking and stuff. Yeah. And uh, Nomad is, I mean, like the principle-wise, you have the same principles, like you have ETCD, you have console, and the, you have kubeDNS, you have console for service discovery. And then basically console is actually solves a lot of stuff. That, and like the console is half a kubelet, and then the node, uh, the nomad second part of the kubelet. That's what kubelet does. And um, But the person with very little experience managed to get, I mean, haven't worked with those technologies before, he managed to get it up and running within a couple of days, basically. And um, there, there is enough documentation. Well, not everything is documented. Like, for instance, if you're just setting up the proof of concept with no uh, limitations, so everyone can do whatever, mm-hmm, then it's yeah. all nice and easy. But as soon as you run into ACLs and start to do, like, you know, authorization tokens, then things becoming a little bit of blurry. There is a little bit less documentation on this, but still mm-hmm. it's possible to figure out. And uh, I would say, we are, we are progressing quite well. There was like no problems that would you know stop us in our tracks, and we would have to scramble and look for solutions. We actually did reach out to the HashiCorp folks and just discuss the ideas how we're doing it. So some some of our assumptions wasn't exactly right, so we had to adjust the architecture a little bit because of yeah. the understanding of how the how the service discover how the health checking in console works because of the all wholesale nodes and the agents will try to ping each other and we will have to segment this network because we saw that we could use just one console cluster for everything, but apparently we cannot. Science. There will be a, a little bit of connectivity issues between them, but that's not the case. Right. Well, that's not as important. But what I'm saying is you don't always have to go with a hype and see what your needs are and uh, choose based on that really and go with a maybe simpler solution i, I, I think actually like you... yeah go ahead go ahead yeah i just wanted to say like if we would not have to do the hybrid cloud there and we would have to if we would just have to have the cloud then i would actually go with ecs because it's like kind of free. The, the the control part is free. They they host it for free, and uh, it um, the overhead on the nodes, comparing to the number of containers you run for Kubernetes, is much less. You just run one uh, ECS agent, thinking which is one container. It's not as mature as Kubernetes in the number of features and stuff, but. In the end, like you don't really want to be a Kubernetes team. Well, you might want to be a Kubernetes team, but I don't want to. I want to, you know, design a solution and that would scale. And I don't want to be bugged down with the minutia or on the boilerplate of set exact platform. And you know, they, they're doing the stuff that someone else can be doing for me. And for instance, for big organizations, they might afford to have a bigger team. I work with small teams where we have to do everything, and then. If we could push some work to people who know how to do it, and apparently they do it for free, well, kind of for free, quote unquote, yeah. you still pay, but it's just distributed cost for, for other services. You still pay for easy tools and stuff. And um, yeah, I would rather do that and uh, would try to start with a more simple solution that would be easy to understand for developers and then see how the whole thing evolves. And then if there is a really, really strong case that we need the features of Kubernetes, like then we might go there. But 
it has to be a case first. You have you don't have to start with a tool first. You have to start with a, what you want to do, what do you want to achieve, and then see what is the simplest way to get there. You know, war of, war of uh, art of war. Like the best battle is the battle you don't fight. Yeah. <laughs> the same here. I think that you 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 said it perfectly. Like you should choose a stack according to your needs. The the problem with that is the needs don't come from the person who is going to build the stack. And so you have to talk to the business and you need someone yeah, who yeah. understands the business and the business needs to have, to have very clear needs that won't mm. change to do that. So the, the hype is actually kind of a, an insurance policy that says, well, mm. if we run into that problems, those problems now, we, probably someone is going to team up with us to find a solution and, and mm. share it. So, so it's more like a herd effect where together we're stronger. And I think that this has value. But as, again, I love the HashiCorp stack because you can learn that stuff quite fast. It, the simple use case is actually simple to implement. And so you, you can get up and running quite quickly. The, the thing is that if the HashiStack doesn't do what you want and your use case, you, you're going to have to kind of make it yourself, which yeah. may or may not be... Uh, you know, what you want, or maybe there is always a solution. You know what I mean? It, it's more mm. like, where do you see yourself in five years doing that? And how, how are you planning to to evolve from there? Because there there is a lot of things. And I, I, I really applaud people who don't choose Kubernetes because that means that they actually know what they're doing. You understand? It's more like, yeah. oh, we don't know. Let's take the default. What, what's the word on the street now? Oh, Kubernetes, mm. okay, let's do that. And then after this, they scream, like, where's my use case? How do I do that? And then, no, but it's the state of the industry. Most most business people yeah. have yeah. no idea what tomorrow is going to look like. And they all act if they do. But, you know, having a plan is actually something that, you know, in a business would be nice to have. Oh, that's most, exactly as you're saying. I mean, in the but, product where we do HashiStack, the, the product owner or well, the person in charge of the technical thing said that, well, how, how about we do Kubernetes? And we are like, well, uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, we have so, so little, little resources here. And like, you have currently a person, one person, like doing the, everything. And... Kubernetes, running the Kubernetes will just consume it. And well, we could go with YKS on AWS, but then you're also paying for the control stack. I mean, the, for the control part, because it's not free on AWS compared like, to GCP, right? And GCP, you don't pay for the masters. You pay only well, that, for the uh, nodes. Actually, now you have a tax of uh, 10 cents per hour per cluster. But uh, uh-huh. yeah, if, yeah, they, they changed it recently. So you now you, you, you pay... Um, you have per, it's per cluster per you know yeah, per yeah. control plane, so it's to force people not to have those really small cluster everywhere, yeah. and they yeah. they consolidate a little bit so that they don't have uh, you know because I guess for for they were, Google is quite uh, smart in the way that they do cost analysis, so they they figure mm. out like okay it's this isolation is costing us too much, let's force people to consolidate. So that and and that it makes more sense to go with Kubernetes if we, if you're running a lot of different workloads, it's it's hmm. kind of like using one tool to rule them all. But um, it, isn't I, that? Yeah, I, I think that's why we are picking like Docker and Kubernetes. I mean, you're picking Docker because you can shoot anything into the Docker, right? Doesn't you're not limited to any language or service. If it runs in Docker, it's good to go. And then if you pick Kubernetes, I mean, you can almost run anything in that. Running Elasticsearch, running databases, running apps. We can run custom jobs. And it's the same, like, orchestrate that keeps everything together. It's managing the same setup. So if I deploy monitoring, it will be on everything. Well, yeah. You, yeah. you see, you just need to have an orchestrator. You don't really need a Kubernetes. You need to have orchestrator, right? You have to go yeah. deeper and see what exactly feature of Kubernetes you need that other orchestrators doesn't provide. So that's what Julian been saying that 
Yeah, you have to analyze I mean, it a little bit deeper. Yeah, but I mean, isn't I mean today Kubernetes is the shining star. That's the tool we go to when we pick orchestrator, right? It's, it's the most common one. We have all the tools for it. It's simple to use. You have it in a cloud provider. Simple to spin up and use. Yeah, but mm. then you can you can ask yourself the question like why why not use a uh, you know serverless. Uh, why, yeah. why not? Yeah, why do you need an orchestrator in the first place? And by the way, I, I'm a yeah. little uh, skeptic when people run database in Kubernetes. I'm like, oh boy, this is going to be a pain because you're going to have to upgrade. You're going to have state. I, I would rather. You know what? what? Matthias, I'm going I, I to give you one uh, one thing to think about yeah. when you like consider Kubernetes and stuff. So, like, you know, generally, even if you go with EKS, right? Yeah. Then, like, a lot of problems solved for you, and Amazon, like, runs it for you, right? Yeah. But then you have to think about cluster version upgrades. You will have to upgrade this thing, and then you will have to migrate. For instance, there is a recommend from security standpoint, it's better to recreate the cluster. Because when you upgrade the cluster in place, the Kubernetes might add additional security features that would make your cluster more secure. But when you upgrade in place, most of them usually are disabled. So keeps yeah. uh, the way. So, so it's backward compatible. So things keeps running as they are. So you're actually not taking advantage of all those security new features and new defaults that's introduced if you would start from scratch. So it is recommended, at least for now, to actually create a new cluster and then migrate your workload. Yeah. And that means you will have to, first of all, have an idea how, how, how do you keep track of all workloads you run in there, keep track of all the configurations you did to this cluster. Well, let's say you do GitOps and it's all in a Git repository. So that's fixed. Yeah. But then you have ingresses coming in and out. You have like ELBs connected. It's a such a mess to solve. And, I mean, that's just the one case of Kubernetes management that you have to do. And there are still like, you have an orchestrator and then you need to configure pod after scalers so as they scale, cluster after scalers so as it scales and all. The pod limits, I mean, the resource limits, this and that. And I mean, there are so many objects that you haven't even heard of that you need to configure because Kubernetes itself has come as a cluster. And there is it's a platform that is nothing configured. So there is a lot of work to configure and know all the stuff, which means that you have to keep learning. And Kubernetes as a platform is evolving rapidly. So you have to keep learning. This is what I'm saying. Like if you have one person in your team, then this person has to be working on Kubernetes to understand what everything is going on and the changes you have between versions to keep up with everything. So it's a lot of work. And then if you go with a nomad, which has less features, but it's moving much more slowly, actually. They just got like the after scaling. <laughs> I think like, was it for containers? I, I, don't, I don't think you no, need to. I think it was after scaling for the nodes. Yeah. I, I don't remember, like they just released 0.11 and there was some after scaling that they didn't have just yet. So which tells you that, yeah, there are not all the features that you have in Kubernetes available there, but it's moving much small, slowly and maybe that's what you need because then, then you just run it and you don't need to keep stay on top of that because it is a quite a lot of work to stay on top of what's going on in Kubernetes. I, uh, yeah, I don't think you need to have all that knowledge to run Kubernetes. I mean, I manage pretty well, but you don't have to go that deep. I mean, just deploying regular pods into Ingress, it works, right? So no. you don't have to go all that deep into auto-scaling pod. I mean, you can deploy a simple service. And isn't that the great part? It's so simple to deploy things. Yeah, but just deploying doesn't give you anything. I mean, you could run it anyway. You could just have EC2 and run Docker Composer and now it runs. Yeah, but it's not that simple to spin up, share resources. You can have them between. You can have more namespaces. You can do more A-B oh, testing. Yeah. All that things. Like... All of those things. You need to configure all of them. So it's not just deploying materials. That's what I'm nah. saying. No, if but you... it's simple. It's simple to, to configure that thing. So you can deploy it. A load balancer, and then you can split traffic with them with deploying uh, YAMLs into the cluster, and you can have them 
can have like a new namespace and separate environments. I think that the orchestrator gives a lot of benefits than traditional EC2 servers. Yeah, for sure. I'm just saying, if you take the typical Helm chart, uh, template it, and output all those YAMLs on the disk, there will be not one YAML file with your deployment definition. No, no, no. But isn't that also so the There mean, will the... be a lot of YAML files. Yeah, but Service, that's... Disruption, disruption budget, and, you know, that the, after uh, HPA, as I said before, the resource limits and stuff. Oops, sorry. Family yeah, but the, 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 the packages with Helm is also great benefits to, I mean, how many run... You just deploy in the, the the standard nginx ingresser with Helm, and or like cert manager or, or external DNS. I mean, there's a simple Helm chart, and I think almost everybody just imply into the cluster, and then they are serial configuration. They're just in there working. Yeah, I I think that um, yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's one way to look at things. I I think really having a clear use case having like the the requirements nailed down is kind of a utopia sometimes and i, I don't know I, I see helm charts as more like a templating tool rather than you know it's a yaml templating tool for, as i see it most people don't use it for more, much more than that and so it, it's uh, it, it depends on the use case i, I don't think there is a one good way to do things it's more like depending on what you need yeah and... i think it's hard to know what what's coming next i mean things are coming so rapidly new services are coming up so when i look but at it's... the platform i'm trying to make a platform that can adapt to new things and i for, for me right now docker or like container and, and kubernetes is is the tool i can pick so then i'm not not bound to anything. I don't have any that strong. Like, yeah, I think that's that's a me. good that's a good thing to have is no attachment to the technology because it's going to change eventually. Yeah. But once again, if you look at uh, okay, if you just want to deploy a few services, why not go with a, a like a serverless, um, you know, serverless platform, and you just done. Why why bother with all that YAML? You know, yeah, I, I... but then, but then that service platform need a database, and I need a test database, and, and then it's just, of course, if you used to run some small service that can run serverless, it's perfectly fine. But sometimes you end up like you're back in, you want to queue, and you want to test queue, and it gets more and more stuff. And then, I mean, the nice part with the Docker Kubernetes is like I don't run, I run Docker in my, my Kubernetes. What do you put in your Docker? It's, it could be anything, right? As long as it's, it's starting in reasonable time. So then I don't have that, that boundaries as well. But if you just run a small service, of course, serverless is the way to go. But I mean serverless for the, um, for the application part. Yeah. Of course, you can have either um, like a managed database or you can run it your own on, on but for that you might not it might be simpler to just spin up a vm install the database in it and and manage it from there because at least there the tooling is there to help you manage that Otherwise, yeah but I, I, that, I think that's what i'm doing but just kubernetes as the way to deploy it i mean i take a node and i could label it like sql server and then deploy that jumble with a stateful set on the easy to like or kubernetes no it's just i use kubernetes to manage all these things for me instead of spinning up an easy to instance by itself and then install that i more or less take the easy to instance attach it to my kubernetes label it like sql and then deploy uh, the sql uh, you know jumble to it like here run this and that's yeah. so, sorry sorry for dropping from the discussion yeah. i'm uh... I got a family bag, so I have a little lady sitting on my laps now. Oh, nice. <laughs> I actually have a cat trying to come into my door. I don't know if I'm going to let her in. A cat? Yeah. Okay. <coughs> but I have a, a final question for you. Okay? Tell me. Slack... What is the topic of the podcast? Exactly. No, it's like <laughs> Slack bots. I started looking at Slack bots. And I started looking at it, Airbot, I think the name was. Do you have any favorite when it comes to Slackbot 
or have you used anybody? What, 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 what is the problem? No, it's not a problem. I mean, more or less like if you have worked with it and what's your favorite among Slack bots? Yeah, but what is your favorite for solving what problem? Chatting with the bot. No, I, <laughs> no I'm trying to... Uh, I, I like I like having small uh, Slack bots. We have it before that you can uh, ask small tasks to. I don't know. You can ask it how many... Uh, users you have in your platform, if you have any alerts, small things you can talk. It can also be used when you, you deploy to report things from from a deployment, how it go, and those sort of things. So it's more like a communication. You know, like a from magic eyes that would answer all your questions. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. No, but there are a lot of different bots around. I started using one. We used Hubot before, I think. This one called BotKit. There are a lot of Slack bots coming up, and I was wondering if you if you used any of them or uh, what for. I, I have some like deployment output coming to Slack, you know, like the, some warnings, alarms posted, but actually not much in terms of interactive. Okay, cool. Because you, you also need to think about security because it's like uh, you know back to the comparing the. Perimeter network and zero trust, right? As soon as you're into the Slack, you basically can do anything. There are very limit, very little limitations you can do, as far as I know. I don't think there is airbag or anything like that. So you could mm-hmm. do like a secret channels, but again, it's just a it's just a perimeter within a perimeter. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm not Julian? big into box as well, but uh, it's. For me, if I want to know something, I'll just make sure the monitoring is good and I have like a few dashboard or, you know, even a database. Sometimes it's faster just to type a query and, and just get it out than, than a bot and having code, having to maintain, having to secure it. It's a lot of hassle for me. I, if I need information, I, I usually go and get it. The, the thing is that if I need it very often, I just, yeah. yeah Maybe that would be the use case. I don't know. I, I I haven't really played with any bot whatsoever. Yeah, we discussed an idea of building a bot for privilege escalations. And um, like you would uh, ask a bot to give you a certain privilege to, I don't know, to SSH or something, to a certain server. Then yeah. that bot would ask the people, like send a message in Slack to people who are supposed to be approving that. Yeah. And then if they approve, then the, the whole thing being logged and that person gets a temporary access to expire yeah. within, a, within a certain time. But still there are a number of ways you could attack this and, and hack it like spoof the requests yeah. maybe. And um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not really sure. So it's an interesting pro Platform. I mean, the Slack itself is an interesting platform for building collaboration tools. Yeah. Like you, with Slack, you don't need to build a UI. You just need to build the rules, like workflows, and then Slack would execute them for you. But um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's for another topic, and I think we're coming up to an hour here, so maybe it's time for us to call it a day. Yeah. Well, you know what, guys? Like we we do have a website. And the address is, what is the address, Matthias? It's devsecops.fm. Right. And yeah. I think now Matthias made it so that we could chat. And they're like, yeah. well, we'll have a comments, right, to the shows. Yeah, we have so, a Discord. Yeah, so what I suggest is we put the links that we discussed today to the comments on the Discord. And so and I'm sorry, it's a little one playing a little bit. Yeah. Uno. And Elsa, you, we will have to put it this. So Elsa, we, we, we're gonna, we can create um, a next podcast and start to collect links and there and discuss the topic for the next one in open instead of the private Slack. Yeah. yeah. So... That's a great idea. 
I because right now that. we have a little bit of private slack for for us and we discuss yeah. a lot of interesting stuff in there and i think it would be a really great place for people to come in participate in those discussions interact with us tell us how wrong we are about things we discuss and yeah uh, it's also gonna hate but if there is anyone mm-hmm. with constructive feedback you're very welcome to devsecops.fm or yeah. punkt.fm how they say it in, in sweden <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks for listening take care guys yeah take care All bye right. bye bye you have been listening to the devsecops podcast with matthias andre and julian for more podcast and notes go to the webpage devsecops.fm thanks for tuning in